Today's scripture is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. You can find it in the Pew Bible on page 271 and 272 of the Old Testament. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his officers, all Israel, with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent a message to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants as his lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by, hand to, by the hand of Uriah in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were vigilant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the king of all the news of the fighting, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that when they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubal? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall? so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead too. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. 
but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to say thanks to Denny, first of all, for mentioning the knockout tournament during his pastoral prayer. We had a great time last night. Uh, big thanks to Katie Oslin. Look on Facebook if you haven't seen pictures already. I do want to let you know that I was the last staff person standing in the bracket because I made one basket, and then it all went bad after that. It was a fun time, and uh, hope that you will uh, join us next year for that great event. I want you to think for a moment with me about getting lost, about getting lost. Does this happen very often to you? You don't have to raise your hand, but maybe you get lost a lot. It happens a whole lot less than it used to, right? GPS, our phones, they help us keep from getting lost, but it still happens sometimes. Uh, once, quite a few years ago, I went on a backpacking trip with my best friend along the Columbia River in Oregon. And we were planning to do a three-day loop hike out along the River Gorge, up a trail uh, to a plateau, back along the mesa, and then back down to our car. Right? Simple, little loop. We loaded up our gear, we loaded up our food, and on the way to the hike, we stopped at her workplace to make photocopies of the pages we would need from the hiking book so we wouldn't have to carry the whole book with us because every pound counts when you're backpacking, right? So we drove to the trailhead. We had a great hike that day to our camping spot. Imagine our surprise when that night, tucked into our sleeping bags, reading by the light of our headlamps, we discovered my friend had only photocopied the beginning and the end of the hike. She accidentally skipped the middle pages. So what should we do? Change our plans? Or strike out and take the path we thought was right, making our way through the wilderness? I mean, maps, how important are those anyway? We decided we could find the way ourselves. So the next morning we packed up our gear and we headed out, eventually turning on a trail that went up Pretty sure it was the way we wanted to go. Up and up and up we hiked. Up and up and up. You've already guessed it was not the right trail. We had no idea where we were headed. And that was probably obvious pretty early on, but it took us most of the day to admit that we were lost. We were on the wrong path. We were headed nowhere where we wanted to go. By the time we admitted this to ourselves, the sunlight was starting to fade and we were down to very little water in our water bottles. The point is it took us way too long to turn around, far too long to admit that we were in the wrong and that we had made a mistake, that we had no idea we were going. It was actually pretty dumb and a little dangerous. Thankfully, we eventually figured it out. We gave in. We admitted the only thing that we could do in the situation was to turn around. We needed to turn around and return to the path we knew, the path that was clear, the path that would take us back eventually toward our car. So we did. We turned around and started hiking down and down and down and down. And of course, once we turned around, things got a lot easier, partially because we're going downhill instead of uphill, 
Well, also because we found water and we found a place to sleep, and the next morning we hiked ourselves back out onto the map and eventually to our car. Now, our story of being lost turned out to have no real consequences beyond some wounded pride, but not all stories of being lost actually turn out that way, do they? Sometimes it's really important to turn around. That's what I want you to hold on to today. Sometimes it's really important to turn around. We're in our second week of this Lenten series exploring how much God loves second chances. And last week we talked about how the mess in your past doesn't have to define your future. No matter what mistakes lay behind you, God is ready to call you forward into service, into leadership to use you for the kingdom. God just stands with arms wide open as simply a part of who God is. The question is, what do we need to do to receive that embrace that God is offering? Sometimes the first thing we need to do is turn around. We see this illustrated so clearly in the story of King David. If anyone ever needed a second chance, it was this guy. Now, you know some stories about David probably. He was king over Israel. He was chosen as king from a very young boy, anointed by the prophets and uh, anointed by God, but it wasn't until he was 30 that he actually ascended to the throne. He had to fight a lot of people, too. If you read earlier in the scriptures, he had to do a lot of fighting to get to the throne, and maybe because of that, or maybe because he just felt like his kingdom was secure, one spring he decided he could take a little break from leading the army, and so he sent them out to fight with the neighbors, and he just hung back in Jerusalem. One particular afternoon that spring, he decided to take a nap up on his roof, And after that nice nap, he got up, he was walking around, and he noticed there in the courtyard below a very beautiful woman taking a bath. Her name was Bathsheba, and David wanted her. Didn't matter to him that she was married. Didn't matter to him. By that point, he already had six wives of his own, Uh, not to mention numerous servants and prostitutes that were at his disposal. Didn't matter. David wanted Bathsheba. So he asked around and he found out that she was the wife of one of his most loyal and brave soldiers, a guy named Uriah. But that didn't matter to David either. David wanted her. So he sent for her. And we don't have any record in the scriptures of what her response was to this. Did she say no? Did she protest at all? Or did she just know that her fate was simply to do whatever the powerful men in her life wanted? We don't know. All we know is David sent for her, and then he slept with her, and she went back home. Just an afternoon fling for a bored king. Except Bathsheba got pregnant. And when he heard the news, David moved from the mode of royal leisure to royal cover-up. He asked for Bathsheba's husband to be sent from the battlefield. And Uriah came, and David said, what's the report from the fighting? And then he said, good job. Why don't you go home and sleep with your wife? That's kind of a nice little idea, nice for the king to say, but Uriah, he said, no, I can't do it. His fellow soldiers were not able to enjoy the comforts of home, so while they were out fighting, he wouldn't enjoy the comforts of home either. This was not the righteousness that David needed, right? David needed him to go home, so the next day, David got Uriah drunk. But even then, Uriah remained faithful to the army and to the king, and he refused to go home and sleep with his wife. What irony. Uriah's solidarity with the soldiers. Uriah refusing to take the pleasures that were rightly his, while David 
David took what was not his to enjoy. So what does David do? He's unsuccessful in passing off the baby as Uriah's. So David sees no other option. He's going to have to have Uriah killed. The king said, make it look like an act of battle. So Uriah was sent to the front, to the heaviest and worst fighting, was left unprotected. And just like David wanted, Uriah died. And what happens? David goes and marries Bathsheba and their son is born. All's well that ends well for David, right? Not exactly. He manipulated people. He used his kingly power. He thought it was going to work out just fine for him, even though he had committed adultery, possibly rape, lying, murder. But then along comes this guy named Nathan, a prophet, who's going to hold him to account. Nathan comes to David, and Nathan tells David this story. He says, there were two men in a certain city, one a rich man, one a poor man. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, all kinds of sheep. And the poor man, the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. And he brought it up from a, from a baby, and it grew up with him and his children, and it used to eat of his meager fare, and it used to drink from his cup, and he used to lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him, this little ewe lamb. Now, a traveler came to the rich man's house, and, and he didn't want to take one of his own flock to prepare a meal for the traveler. So the rich man went and took the ewe from the poor man's house and prepared it for the guest who had come for him. And David heard this story, and he was furious. He thought this was a story about a greedy rich man in his kingdom abusing power over another poor man. And David said, that man deserves to die for what he's done. To which the prophet Nathan says to David in one of the greatest moments in scripture, you, you are the man. All of a sudden, David realizes what he's done. His sinfulness comes crashing in on him, strikes his heart. He sees in an instant his own foolishness, his own hubris. He didn't try to defend himself before Nathan. He didn't try to blame Bathsheba. He offered no justification. He simply says in response, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And in that one simple sentence, David confesses that he took the wrong path. He admitted he walked away from the path of righteousness that God laid out for him. He went his own wild way and he regretted it. He regretted it and he wanted to turn back. The prophet Nathan opens up, offers up this harsh truth and David repents. He turns himself back to God in sorrow for the choices he made, the harm he caused. And Nathan, Nathan went on to prophesy that the child of David and Bathsheba would die. And, and David pleads with God, please don't make it so. But in fact, the baby does grow very ill and dies. But that's not the end of David's story. David gets a second chance. Even after all of this awfulness, after all of this horrible misuse of power, David goes on to be a very successful and beloved king. He turns back to God. He follows God's ways. And it turns out that he and Bathsheba have four more children together, including one of them named Solomon. Solomon, who succeeds his father on the throne. So God took this mess that David created, this horrible mess, and God decides to use it for the future of the kingdom of Israel. And David ends up being the most beloved king in all the history of the nation, remembered for all time as being the one who was closest to God's heart.
But it took repentance for David to get there. He had to repent. The Hebrew word for repentance is shub, which expresses the idea of turning back. It, it's literally about retracing your steps in order to return to the right way, a turning around, a choosing a different path. David's story reminds us that repentance is the heart of our faith. It's what opens up the way for us to take advantage of God's second chances. Repentance, turning around. So essential to our faith is repentance that it's at the very heart of Jesus' basic message. Matthew chapter 4 says, Jesus went about the towns of Galilee preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was Jesus' sermon, repent. That was his call to the people around him. Turn back to God. Put your feet back on the right path. Stop walking your own way. Turn yourself back to the ways of God. Repent. And Jesus said that because he knew as we turn back to God, what we're going to find is God's open arms waiting for us with a second chance. No matter how far we've strayed, no matter how long we've been gone, no matter how big the craters we've left in the road, when we repent, when we turn back to God, God will be there waiting to wipe the slate clean, to give us a second chance, as open and fruitful as David's was. The scriptures, they make it clear that God is always ready to offer that road to leads to life, but we have to want to be on it. That's what repentance is, wanting to be on the road that leads to life, wanting to be headed in a direction that brings wholeness and joy. Repentance is wanting to be on the road that leads to God. It's an act of faith from us that God responds to with love and hope and healing. I don't know how often you've heard sermons on repentance. We don't really do this all that well in the United Methodist Church. We don't have prayers of confession very often, really just when we take Holy Communion once a month. We don't spend a lot of time wringing our hands about the ways we've strayed from God. But that doesn't mean we haven't done it. I strongly suspect that you have strayed from the ways of God because I know I have. And unless I'm up here all alone and having a hard time living out the life of faith, I know that I struggle with letting things like fear or selfishness creep into my head and my heart, and then they start to affect my actions. I know that I have turned aside from the needs of others and allowed myself to choose the comfortable over the righteous. I was with the confirmation kids on Ash Wednesday, and I told them the story about how earlier in the week I had been at Southern Methodist University uh, for a meeting, and I was walking across campus. I had my Starbucks. I was booking it, trying to get to my meeting on time, and I saw these three kids riding their bicycles along the road, along the campus. I don't know where they were headed. They were probably middle schoolers. And all of a sudden, one of them like hit a, a bump in the sidewalk and fell. And I kept walking, kind of put my head back. Was he okay? His friends kept on riding too. He got up, I thought, oh, he's okay. He, he stood up, <laughs> I don't have to worry about it. His bike, though, he got on his bike, he tried to, and his bike wasn't working, so he jumped off his bike again. And I could see this as I was walking down the street. Why didn't I turn around to go see if he was okay? I was the adult in the situation. It was just a moment of selfishness. And we have moments like that day in and day out where we choose to turn away from those in need and instead to go our own way. So I repent before you right now, congregation, for that 
and for many other moments when I have chosen, chosen to not follow the path of God. I want to say that repenting is not about digging deep into shame or guilt. Repentance isn't about berating ourselves or feeling unworthy. It's about being honest. It's about being vulnerable before God and asking God to redeem when and where we have failed. Repentance is about clearing the way the mess so we can be ready to have a second chance. Repentance gets us ready to embrace that second chance or third or fourth or fifth or however many we need God to offer us. But if we don't take time to confess and repent, we won't be ready to walk down this new road that God is ready to give us. My challenge for you this week, this is not going to be hard for you to figure out what you think I want you to do. Any guesses? Repent! You didn't say that real loud, but I'm sure that's what was in your head. Repent! Repent, Jesus tells us, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent now today of the sins that you've committed. Confess your need for God and all the ways that you strayed from God's path. Ask God this week, today, for, for a second chance in whatever way that you need it most. And you can do this with a quiet time of prayer. You can do it by journaling. You can do it by talking to a trusted friend. You can do it by coming to talk to me or Pastor Denny. Take a moment to turn your heart back to God and recommit yourself to walking in God's ways. A contrite heart is all that God desires, the Psalms tell us. A heart of repentance is what God will embrace. And then God will make a new way, a fresh start, a new future for all of us to thrive in God's peace and joy. Thanks be to God. Amen.